If you enjoy studying the Bible, but have grown frustrated looking for solid content you can trust, welcome to Get Fed Today, one podcast designed to provide the Christian a hearty Bible study each day, five days a week. Every Monday, the team at Get Fed Today posts five hand-selected sermons from a vast catalog of reliable Bible teachers for you to enjoy on your commute, to and from work, during your daily walk or run, or that hour you spend working out. Please note, Get Fed Today only posts content that is already available for free on the internet. Nothing about this ministry is monetized, and a few costs associated with hosting the podcast have been covered by a single benefactor. In fact, Get Fed Today is a volunteer ministry run by a team of Christ followers who love God's Word, enjoy good Bible teaching, and genuinely want to make it as easy as possible for their fellow brothers and sisters to get fed today. All you have to do is subscribe. For quick links to the podcast available on Apple, Google, and Spotify, simply visit GetFedToday.com. And again, that's GetFedToday.com. First six verses, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God to the saints which are at Ephesus, and to the faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace be to you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ, according as he has chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, wherein he hath made us accepted in the beloved. Notice that in verse 6. To the praise of the glory of his grace. His grace is so glorious, even the glory of his grace should be praised, let alone the grace itself. Now, we're going to look at the will of the Father this morning. From verses 3 to 6, we have the will of the Father. From verses 7 to 12, we have the work of the Son. And verses 13 and 14, we have the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And it's it's a doxology. It's the longest run-on sentence, uh, maybe anywhere in literature, uh, certainly in the Scripture. And Paul just breaks into this doxology, this praise, and, and these ideas just run out of him over and over. So... Uh, first, he tells us about the will of the Father in this doxology. We're going to look at that today. Next week, he tells about the work of the Son. In 13 and 14, he tells us about what the Holy Spirit does to preserve, to secure all of that. And at the end of each one, he says, to the praise of his glory. You'll see it in verse 12. You'll see it in verse 14. So this morning, we're looking at that first section. Paul is in Rome. Chapter 3, verse 1. He's a prisoner. You have the picture in Acts 28. He is in shackles. He is not yet in a dungeon. He writes Colossians, Philemon, Ephesians from there. And he's writing to this church that he knows well. Passing through at the end of the second missionary journey, going back then on the third, Acts 19, he comes to Ephesus. As he comes there, he meets certain disciples, senses something's missing in their lives. He said, under what baptism were you baptized? They said, well, under John's baptism. It says he explains the way of Christ more perfectly to them. They're baptized in the name of Jesus. 
after the baptism in water, subsequent, he lays hands on them, they receive the Holy Spirit, they speak in tongues and so forth. And Paul sets up house there, first in the synagogue where he's debating for several months, causes a ruckus as he always does. He's run out, he moves to the school of Tyrannus, he rents that out, and for over two years, the old Latin texts tell us from 11 to 4 every day, long period of time, he teaches the Word of God. You figure over two years, five hours a day, six days a week with Paul, what an education that is. And he's not teaching from the New Testament, it's not written. He's teaching from the Old Testament. He has to be teaching chapter by chapter, verse by verse. He'd be running out of stuff to say. Six days a week, five hours a day, teaching in the school of Tyrannus. And as he works then making tents, sweating, it says they take his sweatbands and his aprons. People are being healed, and the word of God is spreading from Ephesus out to Philadelphia, Laodicea, Smyrna, Pergamos, uh, Thyatira, Colossae. The word of God spreads through the whole air, and these other cities are infected with the gospel from Ephesus. So notable does Paul come that there's seven sons of a man named Sceva who's a Jew and they're exorcists and they watch Paul casting out demons and they confront this demon-possessed man and they say, in the name of Jesus who Paul preaches, come out. And the, the demon goes, <laughs> I think. He said, he said, look, Jesus I know, Paul I'm familiar with. Who are you? And it says the guy jumps on all seven of them, rips their clothes off, beats them up. They run out of the house screaming and naked. And it becomes this big famous incident in Ephesus. Everybody hears about it. So much so that the converts bring together their magical arts, their books on sorcery and so forth. They make a big fire. It says it's worth 50,000 pieces of silver. That's salary for 150 men for a year. The, the, the wealth of what was destroyed there because of Paul's impact. These Ephesians were willing to bring their pornography, their whiskey, their drugs, their sorcery, their sin, and destroy all of it because of what Paul was doing in the midst. So impactful was the ministry there that the artisans, the tradesmen in the town, and the major ones who made the little statues of Artemis, who was the major local deity. They worshipped over 25 other deities in Ephesus, but the major deity was Diana. The temple to Diana was 420-some foot long, 220-some foot wide, over 60 foot tall. It was four times bigger than the Parthenon um, in Athens, and it was one of the seven wonders of the world. And it was the banking capital of Asia, Ephesus, about 300 to 350,000 in population. Only Rome itself and Alexandria in Egypt were larger in population. It had a port. The trade route came from the east, the far east in there. It was a trade capital. It was the banking capital of that part of the world. So Ephesus, crowded city, filled with immorality, filled with prostitution. They had hundreds of temple prostitutes filled with money, filled with every vice, filled with all kinds of people. It was Philadelphia. It was Las Vegas. It was the world that we live in. 
Paul is sitting in prison in Rome thinking about those there in Ephesus and what had happened. And so many got converted that nobody was buying the statues of, the, of, of, the, of Diana. And the tradesmen started a big riot. They encouraged Paul to get out of town. And, and the, the local governor had to settle things down so the Romans wouldn't get involved. He impacted the whole area. Now, he moves on to the area of Macedonia and so forth. And when he heads back to Jerusalem, he wants to get there for the feast. He meets the elders of Ephesus in Acts chapter 20 on the beach at Miletus. And he just says to them, look, I cease not to warn you, you know, day and night. You know, you need to feed the flock of God, which is among you, that God bought with his own blood. Because after my departure, grievous wolves are going to come in, not sparing the flock. And there's going to men that are going to arise drawing disciples after themselves instead of after the Lord Jesus. And it says he wept there. And the elders from Ephesus fell upon his neck. They wept with him. They knew it was the last time he was going to see him. He said, bonds and afflictions await me. None of this means anything to me except that I might finish my course. He had no trouble with predestination. He says in chapter 2, there's good works foreordained that you should walk in them. He says, I want to finish my course. That's all I want to do. It's laid out for me. The day I got saved on the road to Damascus, the Lord said, Saul, Paul, you're going to stand in front of rulers and kings and the Gentiles for my name's sake. All of it's happened in my life. He said, all of that is rolled out. So he writes to them and he encourages them and he speaks to them. He loves them. He knows them. Most of them know him And there's been converts since. Certainly they all know about Paul. So he begins as he writes to this church, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God to the saints which are at Ephesus and to the faithful in Christ Jesus. Paul, first word, warmed the heart of this church as they got the letter. An apostle of Jesus Christ, look, by the will of God, he's not struggling with that. He was foreordained, predestined, you know, that was the purpose of his life. I'm an apostle by the will of God. He's not struggling with the fact that he's in prison. He understands this is the pathway that he was supposed to take. He he knows what's going on in his life is in the will of God. There's no struggle here. Maybe, you know, and he says he's writing to the saints and to the faithful in Christ Jesus. Questions we might ask ourselves as we look at this first verse. Where and who are you by the will of God? Where and who are you by the will of God? Paul says he's not struggling in prison. I can't wait to get out of here. Send me a cake with a file in it. You know, there's none of that. He's, he's an apostle. He's where he is and who he is by the will of God. There's no struggle. There's no struggle in his life. Neither should they be in our, you know, you are who you are. You are where you are. Are you at peace with the fact that it's by the will of God? As we look through these first six verses, you need to be at peace with that. He writes to the saints that are at Ephesus. Now, saints, you think, well, there's the saints and the ain'ts. And I'm not one of the saints. I must be one of the ain'ts. We have a strange idea of saints. There's little guys that sit on your dashboard. um, So they keep you in line. And hopefully all the screwballs that are out on the highway, uh, that those are saints. 
You know, we have, we have this whole idea, you know, in, in the church, they're canonized. They have to go through this whole process where the elders of the church come together. They'll talk about, uh, you know, the cardinals, whoever they collect to do it. This person was this. They had a godly life, their, their character, the behavior, and these miracles were done in their lives. And they have to go through that whole process. Then the interesting is they have, they have others that will oppose it just to make sure it's genuine. They call the, uh, the, uh, the person who opposes it, the devil's advocate in this whole process of canonization. But that's not what it's talking about here. The New Testament knew nothing of that. Here, the saints are just those who are separated for the purpose of God. Those that are his. That's you and I. Look next to you. You're sitting next to a saint. I know you've never seen him on a dashboard. I'm telling you, you're sitting next to a saint. And don't say, that's my husband. He's an ain't. He ain't a saint. No, no. This is not your decision. This is God's. And to the faithful in Christ Jesus. It isn't those who never do anything wrong. That's why they're saints. You might better translate that to those who are full of faith in Christ Jesus. The idea is they're trusting him. They're believing in him. Those are the faithful in Christ Jesus. Paul is writing to those that are in Christ Jesus. He's going to use that 10 times in the first 13 verses. That's spherically. They're in the sphere of, you know, Christ Jesus. He uses it 164 times in all of his writing, if you combine them, in Christ. And he's going to say, those who are in Christ and in Ephesus. Two addresses. Look, that's how this letter is broken down. The first three chapters are written to those in Christ. The last three written to those in Ephesus. The first three are doctrinal. The last three are practical. The first three are where we sit. The last three are how we walk. And Paul's going to say remarkable things by the Holy Spirit to us because you can't walk the right way until you're convinced of who you are in Christ. Because if you think you need to do it on your own and you fall down, Satan's going to be there to condemn you, to throw you down. You're going to have to know how to stand and put on your armor because he's not going to want you to believe any of these things. You need to know first who you are before you can get on with how you should act. And Paul establishes that in the book of Ephesians. Two addresses. In Christ and in Ephesus. You have two addresses. In Christ and in Philly. And if you haven't noticed, your problems are not in Christ. They're in Philly. Okay? But you need to understand where you are before the Father in regards to Christ so that when you mess up, you make a mistake, you get back up, you shake the dust off, and you keep moving. So he says here, verse 2, grace be to you and peace. Notice, from our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Look what it says in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of who? Our Lord Jesus Christ. So in verse 2, he says he's our Father. In verse 3, he says he's the Father of the Lord Jesus Christ. What he's saying is it's the same family. The Father of Jesus is the Father of you also. Jesus, when he was going to ascend, said to the women, Go tell my disciples that I ascend unto my God and their God, unto my Father and their Father. In fact, he said, go tell my brethren. In Galatians, Paul had said, the Spirit of Christ in our heart crying, Abba, Father. So here it says, grace be to you. And, and look, it's always grace before peace. If you don't have the grace of God nailed down, you'll never have the peace of God. 
and in experience. You have peace with God because of the blood of Jesus. But if you want to experience the peace of God in your heart, you need to understand his grace. God's riches at Christ's expense. Man, this chapter lays that out. You're in God's grace, and because of that, you have peace. Paul no doubt thinks of shalom, the Greek, and the Hebrew greeting. But the word Irene, peace, in the, in the Greek means to, br- to bring pieces together, to bring things together. You're never at peace when things are broken and they're scattered. Peace has the idea of bringing things together. You can be settled. Grace, he says, and peace be unto you. From the Lord Jesus Christ, from God our Father, and from the Lord Jesus Christ, so they both give us grace and peace. They're they're co-equal. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. Blessed, you know, we read are those who mourn, you know. Uh, Blessed are those who weep. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. They'll be satisfied. You read through the Sermon on the Mount. That's a different word. Makeros means to be happy, you know. Uh, That's not the word here. This word here is to eulogize. When you do a funeral, you have a eulogy. You're speaking of the person's character, of their nature, their memory. He says, eulogized be our God and our Father, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, that we should speak well of him. And he says here, because he's blessed us with not most, with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places. And, it, and it, it's not like there's just heavenly blessings and then earthly blessings. The idea is all of these spiritual blessings are ours because we are in Christ. You know, it says we're seated in heavenly places with Christ. Imagine that as this is going on right here. So he says all spiritual blessings. Look, these Ephesians, many of them had lost their jobs. Many of them were being persecuted. Here they were living in the banking capital of the world. And Paul is saying to them, no, you're wealthy. You may not have money in the bank. You may have been cut off from your trade. You may not have a job right now. The economy you're living in may be falling apart. But you're wealthy because you have been bequeathed with all spiritual blessings in the heavenlies. This is not our home. We are passing through. You're going to step into glory. You're going to step into your mansion. Everything there is yours because of Christ. And we need to remember that because, look, we live in Philly. We sit here on Sunday morning. We can feel like, man, I messed up this week. Or, man, I did this this week. Oh, I was mean to my wife, my husband. I was, man, I did this this week. Man, I'm struggling with this. Oh, no, I can't believe I snorted a line of Coke again. Oh, no, I can't believe I put the pornography. Oh, no, I can't believe I did this. I can't believe that. And, and we can be defeated. We shouldn't be. Look, we shouldn't be doing those things because we're in Christ. But that's who you are. You're believers, you're the faithful, you're saints, you're in Christ, and you have been blessed with all spiritual blessings in the heavenlies, not because of anything you've done, but because of Jesus Christ and God's plan for your life. And we're living in Ephesus. It's all around us. And we get so caught up on the horizontal, sometimes we don't sit back long enough and just think of what's happening on the vertical. Look, this afternoon, by this evening, you know what you should be thinking? White as snow, white as snow, white as snow. You don't even remember last week. The homework was easy. That's what you're supposed to remember. Look, he's blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places. He tells us why, that's right or how. He says, according 
Here's why. As he hath chosen us, now look, us, we, Paul's including himself throughout. He has chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself according to the good pleasure of his will. Look, God just blurts this right out. Election, predestination. He doesn't even hesitate. On this end, we're going, uh-oh, uh-oh, what do I do with that? How do I, how do I reconcile that with you? You know, God's sovereignty, human responsibility. What am I supposed to do? This is a theological problem. What do I do here? How do I work this out? God doesn't even hesitate. He just says it from heaven. Hey, I chose you out from everybody else before the world was even formed. Don't worry. I know what I'm doing. I chose you and I predestined you. We're chosen out from and we're predestined for or to some things. And God just blurts it out. This is not for a seminary. This is for a congregation. This is for sheep. This is for me. And I'm to enjoy it. Listen, and yesterday, again, I had Kathy and Josh pray for me because I was fried last night reading through theological discourses. It says this in Romans, knowing that all things work together for good, those that are called uh, according to his purpose, for whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed in the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he did predestinate, them also he called, whom he called, them he justified, whom he justified, them he glorified. What shall we say then to these things? He doesn't say, okay, Let's get ready to rumble, you know, sit down and argue about these things theologically. What do we say to these things? He tells us, if God be for us, who can be against us? It's supposed to be a consolation. It's supposed to blow our minds. And it should blow our minds because this is not an intellectual exercise. When Paul gets to verse 15, he breaks into a prayer and he says, I pray that God will give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of these things. You are not going to hack down this, you know, redwood tree with your intellect and drag it into your fireplace. It ain't going to happen. This is not something that's taken down by human intellect. It is something that's imparted by revelation by the Holy Spirit of God. And we take to our lives and to our hearts and we realize I'm his chosen son. I'm his chosen daughter through his election. And he's predestined things for me. That is to be a consolation for us. You know, if you want a headache, get a bottle of Excedrin and read the bondage of the will and listen to Luther and Erasmus argue for this far. By the time you get to the end of the book, you forget what was in the beginning. Listen to what he says here. We're blessed in all spiritual blessings in heavenly places. According to the fact that that's true because he has chosen us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be, not because we are, because we ain't. He has chosen us in him before the foundation of the world. Listen, Revelation chapter 13, verse 8 says, The Lamb was slain from the foundation of the world. First Peter chapter 1, verses 18 to 20 tell us, as The Lamb was slain from the foundation of the world. God knew what was going to happen before it happened. 
you know, Acts chapter 2 tells us that Christ himself was offered by the predeterminate counsel and foreknowledge of God. For those of you who study, there's a Granville Sharp rule there in the Greek that makes his foreknowledge and his foredoing the same thing because if God foreknows he can't not act, that would make him immoral. I don't want to argue about all those things. I understand them. I have people come up after the last service telling me all that. I'm thinking, I've got blood running out of my ears and eyes from reading all this. I understand this. And I love it. And I love to study. But if God be for us, who can be against us? It says, he's chosen us in him before the foundation of the world. Chosen is aridist. It means it was once and for all. It's done. It has within it the word ek, which means out from among. It's in the middle voice that means he did it for himself. What this is saying is before the worlds were even formed... In God's election, he chose you out from among others for himself. It's an emotional thing. Well, that's not fair. What about those? No, I'm telling you what God says right here. It's to be a consolation for us. Well, that's not fair. What if I'm not elect? Well, at the end of the service, we'll give you a chance. Come forward. Then you'll be elect. What if I don't come forward? Well, then you're not. Well, that's not fair. Well, then come forward. I mean, what's the problem? I don't understand. He has chosen us in him from the foundation of the world. What is saying is before the worlds were formed... In his foreknowledge, he knew us. Anything you've done that surprised him or let him down. I have people come up at church and say, you know, I feel like I'm disappointing him. You can't disappoint him. He knows the end from the beginning. How do you disappoint someone who knows you're going to do it before you do it? And he picked you anyway. He didn't say, another lemon. I wish I had foresight when I do these things. You were chosen in Christ, not of your own merit, not because you deserved it, a sovereign decision in Christ. He chose you for himself with a once and all act, ek, out from among others. That's what it says. And he says, he did that, that we should be, not because we are, holy and blemishless, holy and without spot before him. You know, Jude will say, Now unto him who is going to present you faultless before his throne with exceeding joy, that we should be holy, set aside, and spotless. No stain on us. Before him in love is remarkable. Before him in love is kata and opion, before him, it's a remarkable phrase. Kata means down in the Greek. En means in. Opion means to look. And it forbids criticism because it's in the context of agape love that sees nothing wrong. What it says here is that he chose you out from among others for himself in Christ before the world were formed, so that you might be holy and without blemish as he looks down into your life with joy and love and no criticism. You feel that today? 
It ain't a feeling. It's true. Look, I messed up this week. I did this. Stop. I'm trying to tell you something here. He sees you in Christ. He doesn't see you in your performance. He's going to tell us how to live as we go on in the epistle. Yes, we should do that. Every saint should be living saintlier as time goes on. We're not arguing about that. But today, he looks down into you with no criticism. Some of you need to be set free because you criticize yourself all day, every day. Some of you mess up. You do one thing wrong during the week. And you're just condemned, condemned, condemned. And the devil comes along and says, well, you're this. Oh, yeah, tell me more. And you're this. And you're that. Oh, yeah, tell me. And tell me more. Yeah, he's through with you. Oh, tell me more. I just need a whooping. Tell me more. Look. This is saying that he looks down into your life without criticism. Delighted. He looks down into you. He cherishes you. You're in Christ. Because we look in the mirror every morning and we criticize ourselves. We listen to our peers criticize us. We listen to the TV criticize because we ain't thin enough or we're too skinny. The criticizes us because we ain't buff enough. We don't have an exercise machine. We don't drive a Lexus. We don't live in this kind of house. We don't do this. We don't do that. We get criticized, 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 criticized. All of us are measuring ourselves against the world. I feel terrible for kids today. Young ladies, the world is telling you to be something that God never intended you to be. You're the daughter of the Most High God. You're not supposed to be sleeping around, lowering your standards, making yourself look as seductive as you possibly can. Let's get some perfume. Let's get poison. Let's get, you know, seduction. Let's get, as the ox led to the slaughter, you know. know, Just just think of what the world is forcing on us. Now, they've opened a door. Recreational marijuana? Are you kidding me? That opened the door of my life. Everybody told me, don't mess with drugs. Don't, you know, black and white films, people lose their mind smoking marijuana. You're almost scared of it. And then when I smoked marijuana, I thought, this is great. Why are they lying to me? I'm going to try LSD. I'm going to try cocaine. You know, it's, it's the doorway. You understand what's opening around us, and the Bible calls it sorcery. We're living in Ephesus. Are we willing to bring our sorcery and our pornography and all those things and burn them and step away from them and turn to Jesus Christ and know in our hearts that in power and revelation that we are his, he chose us before the foundation of the world. We ain't staying here. We're on a journey. We're on a pilgrimage. We're passing through. And God, our father, looks down into us with delight and he doesn't criticize us at all. He sees nothing in us but purity because of Jesus Christ. Look, you have to take that to yourself. Don't just clap about it. Take it to yourself. It has to be real in your life or you're not going to be free. He says in regards to that, that he's predestined us pro orizo, orizio, pro ahead of time, horizon, we get horizon. He sees, you can, you can, it, can be, it can be foreordained. He sees the horizons ahead of time. He set them out for us. Paul has no problem with that. On the road to Damascus, God told him how his whole life was going to roll out. When he comes there to Acts 20, the elders on the beach of, of Ephesus, for, uh, Miletus, he says, bonds and afflictions await me. The Holy Spirit's telling me, I have no problem, I know that. I just want to finish my course. He understands there's a course for his life. He tells here... Uh, these Ephesians, that there's good works foreordained that they should walk in them. He has no trouble. Yes, God has elected us. 
He's made us his own, according to his own good pleasure, and he's predestined. There's a purpose. He has things for us moving forward. He says, having predestinated us to the adoption of children. Now, it isn't adoption the way you and I think of adoption. That's not a bad thing, because you think, well, if he adopted me, he picked me out. You know, I know all your kids, they just showed up somehow. These are, it's nice to be ones that were actually picked out ahead of time. That's not the idea here. The adoption of children in the culture was when you were able to stand up and take the place of adult inheritance. You were a full inheritor of all that was yours. That was the period of adoption of children Here he's saying he's blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly place. All the riches of heaven are ours. And that is according to the fact that he chose us in Christ before the world was formed for himself. That we might be holy without blame before him in love. And he looks down into us with pleasure, without judgment. And he's predestinated us then to the adoption of children that we would be the inheritors of all that he has for us. Of all that he has for us in Christ Jesus. According to the good pleasure of his will. The thelema there, his will, the idea is it's emotional. It's not just intellectual. The good pleasure of his will attached to you, bestowing upon you all of the blessings of his son Christ Jesus, who he watched die on the cross for you. It's an emotional thing with the Father. His heart is invested in it. You're his sons and his daughters. He is able to look down into you and see you spotless. He is unable to criticize you because you're in Christ. And he's bestowing upon you all of the heavenly blessings that are yours because of Christ Jesus. Predestined you for those things. He's not, you know, there's an inheritance, incorruptible, undefiled, fadeth not away. It says reserved in heaven. That's because he knows we're going to get there. Why would he reserve it if nobody was showing up? And, you know, look, Jesus says, I have chosen you. You have not chosen me. This shouldn't be a problem. Well, what do we do, John? I'm kind of struggling here. You know, did God elect some and not elect others? Did, you know, what happens with, what about human responsibility? What about God's sovereignty? I'll tell you this, they're both in the scripture. They're both there. And if you're an honest exegete, an expositor, some verses you're going to be a Calvinist, some verses you're going to be an Armenian. It's just both there. I don't struggle with it. I don't have a problem with it. Charles Spurgeon said, I know he chose me before I was born because he didn't ever chose me after I was born. Charles Spurgeon said, I may not be able to reconcile these two tracks, but you can't make them cross, he said. The best explanation I've ever heard for any of you that are interested, and then you can just argue with that on your own, was by Hugh Ross, who's an astrophysicist. He's not a theologian. He was on a television show, and someone asked him, and no doubt it was set up because he was ready for the question, they asked him about God's sovereignty and human responsibility. How do the, does it trouble you, those things? How do you get around that as a scientist? Do you think about it? He says, look, he says... As a scientist, I realize that if this was a human book, those things would have been removed. He said, finding those things in the, in the scripture, 
the supposed contradiction between God's sovereignty and human responsibility is what makes me know that this is not a human author. So he, he said, this is the way I look at it. And he had a photograph. He pulled it out. It was a photograph of this white triangle sitting on a table. And he said, understand, this has three angles, three sides. No matter, it's got two dimensions, height and width. No matter how many times I turn it, this can never be a circle. It has three angles and three sides that will never change. Then he showed a photograph of the same object from above, and it was a, it was a white Dixie cup sitting on the fat end. He said, by adding one dimension, now both things can be true. He said, what can't be true in two dimensions can be true in three dimensions. In two dimensions, it can only be a triangle. It can never be a circle. In three dimensions, it can be a triangle and a circle. And he said, when I see that stuff in the scripture, it tells me that where God wrote from enjoys more dimensionality than we have. And evidently, where God wrote from, both things are true. And we're not to fight with and struggle with those things. We're to assume the responsibilities we feel the Scripture wants to put on us, but without condemnation because we're elect, we're chosen, we're in Christ Jesus from the foundation of the world. And that, according to his good pleasure, he's emotionally involved in it. He's trying to take these great things, God Almighty, and speak them to the congregation, to sheep, to the church. This is not for seminary. This is for us to enjoy and to be edified by and he said, all of these things, in verse 6, are to the praise of the glory of his grace. His grace is so glorious that just the glory of his grace should be praised. And he said, it's in the context of that, of his grace, that he has made us accepted in the beloved. Now look, that verse is part of my testimony. Some of you here this morning maybe have never come to Jesus Christ. Never come. And I think you need to do that this morning if you never come. Some of you here have gone through difficult things. Maybe you backslid for a while. You went AWOL. You were a prodigal. And you know, you come back to the Lord, but then you struggle. Because you know, I shouldn't have done that. I knew better. I I was saved for a year and a half, and I backslid back in 1972. And I was really troubled because I thought my heavenly father knew what I was doing. You know, he's ashamed of me. Even my earthly father, if he knew what I was doing, he'd be ashamed of me. And I, and I tried to come back to the Lord. I did come back, but I walked around with condemnation over my head because I had sinned against light. I had known better. I read in the scripture that God forgave me, but I couldn't forgive myself. I'm in Assembly of God Church in San Diego, and I was there. It was a big church, about 2,000 people. And I went there because they had free coffee and cake that night. And I was living in a Christian commune where you didn't get much free coffee and cake. So I went there and I listened to the guy. And afterwards, I'm downstairs eating coffee and cake. And here comes the speaker and he catches my eye through the crowd. I don't want any of that. So I disappear behind a wall. I'm enjoying my coffee and cake, minding my business. And this guy comes and finds me. And, he, and I never met, he didn't, we never, you know, he, he says, I have a word from the Lord for you. And I'm thinking, oh, great, here I am in a Pentecostal church. What's this guy going to do to me? Make me sit in the middle of the party, everybody get around me. What's coming down next, you know? And he says, this is the word of the Lord for you. He, sa- he said, God told me he's forgiven you, but you haven't forgiven yourself. And he said, this is the word of the Lord for you. You are accepted in the beloved. And I'm trying not to blubber with my call. Oh, thanks. I appreciate the word. You know, just, you know, you know, trying to be manly in the middle of all of that. 
But if you have been AWOL, if you've been a prodigal, if you're sitting here condemned because you did stuff and you know better and you can't get rid of the guilt and you're still listening to the devil, let me tell you this this morning. Listen to me. This is the word of the Lord for you. You are accepted in the beloved. You are accepted in the beloved. It is the work that God did, not you. It's relative to Christ Jesus and his glory. It was accomplished before the worlds were formed, where you were elect. You were chosen out from among others. God did that himself for himself. That you might be holy and blameless before him. He looks down into you. He can't find one thing to criticize in love. And then he's predestinated you. He's marked out your future so that you stand before him as adult children, heirs, joint heirs with Christ. And that is all according to the good pleasure of his will. His own emotion is involved in all of that. And that is to the praise of the glory of his grace whereby he has made you accepted in the beloved. And Satan condemns some of us, and we sit around our entire lives, sometimes sadly, and don't realize. We have to realize first who we are in Christ before we can walk the way that we should. William Randolph Hearst, multimillionaire of the last century, and in the last century, you're a multimillionaire. You were really a multimillionaire. And uh, was traveling somewhere and at some art exhibit, read something about these famous paintings, saw photographs of them, thought they were beautiful. So he sent out some of his guys, go search, find these, buy them. I don't care what the price is. I want them. You know, it's nice to live like that, isn't it? And uh, his guys came back after a while and said, we can't find He said, go back out and continue to search till you find them. I forget how many months later, they finally, through some contacts, found out what, where they were. They came back and they said, we found the paintings. William Randolph Hearst said, great, where are they? They said, they're in your warehouse. <laughs> some of you. struggling about the blessings of God in your life. You need to realize these are things that are already in your warehouse. You could never afford them. You could never put them there. But to refuse them or to cast doubt upon them is to malign the word of God and the son of God. Those things are already yours. They are already in your storehouse. They are the heavenly riches that are yours through the work of God the Father, through the plan he devised. Next week, we're going to look at the work of the Son in purchasing and forgiving, and then the security provided by the Holy Spirit. And then verse 15 to the end of the chapter of this long prayer, Paul says, you know, I pray that God would give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of these things that you might comprehend what are the riches of his inheritance in the saints. Not your inheritance. You read this stuff and think, man, are you kidding me? He says, no, no, no. I, I want the Holy Spirit to show you what are the riches of his inheritance in you. Imagine that. Imagine that. I'm going to challenge you today if you are a prodigal, 
you're backslidden, you want to come forward at the end of the service, we would love to pray with you. You are accepted in the beloved. You can either fight that till you fall over. You can still be a knucklehead and go out and keep sinning. You ain't going to find anything out there. There isn't anything out there. You were made for a different place. All of your life is hid with Christ and God. Well, I can't comprehend all that. We, none of us can. Our experience is never going to be equal to the reality of these things this side of heaven. This is reality, but our experience this side of heaven will never equal that. We know that because in chapter 2 he says even in the ages to come, he's still going to be teaching of his grace and of his mercy to us. These are eternal things, but they're healthy enough for us to embrace now. If you are a prodigal, you're backslidden, you want prayer, you come forward today at the end of the service. Let me talk to you if you don't know Jesus Christ. What this says here is that God chooses, that he predestines. This says this, you couldn't be sitting here listening to me unless God wanted you sitting here listening to me. Sorry. (laughs) Hearing that if you'll turn from your sins and give your life to Christ today, and we're going we're to have the musicians come now. We're going to sing a song at the end of the service. If you'll get out of your seat, we're going to call you to stand publicly and come standing here and saying, I want Christ's forgiveness. I want him as my Lord and Savior. That when that happens, you can be assured you're one of the elect. Well, what if I won't want to do that? Well, then you ain't one of the elect. Well, that ain't fair. Well, come forward and be one of the elect then. Just stop. How could you be sitting in a place like this, listening to me, unless God's hand was on your life? We're so caught up with the nonsense around us in the world, we don't still ourselves long enough to sense the Spirit of God working. There's a greater reality all around us. You couldn't be here today listening to this unless God wanted you to hear about his love and forgiveness through Christ. Are you going to walk out of here without responding to that? Or are you going to respond to it and say, you know what? If this is real, I want it. You couldn't even be saying that unless something was going on in your heart. If this is real, I want it. I don't want Calvary Chapel. I don't want to play church. I don't want phony religious games. But I'm tired of trying to do it on my own. I'm tired of the emptiness. I'm tired of the games. If this is true, and God chose me before the foundation of the world, and that's why I am sitting here today, I want to come to terms with that. If he gave his son to die on the cross for me and I can have that assurance today, I want that. If that's you, as we sing this last song, you get out of your seat and you come and you stand here right in front of everybody with the prodigals that are going to come. You just come and say, all right, I want this. You do what you want with it. What this text we look at this morning says, you couldn't be sitting here today listening to this invitation. Unless God loved you so much, he brought you to the place where you'd be sitting here listening. What are you going to do with that? With a God that loves you so much, he couldn't get you to go to a normal church, so he brought you here. (laughs) This is the last stop, man. This is the last watering hole. If you can't make it here, you ain't going to make it anywhere. We're going to sing this song. I'm just saying that. This should be inviting. There's nothing threatening here. We're saying to you, 
This is true. There's an empty tomb in Jerusalem. Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. God sent him into this world to die for your sins because he foreknew you. He chose you. He did it in love to make you his own. You come and respond to that today. Let's stand. Let's pray. Let's worship. If he's drawing you today, you come. Father, I know you've overheard. And Lord, these things don't sort out easily just into categories or files. But Lord, they do warm our hearts. They do speak to us, Lord. They do woo us, Lord, and draw us closer to you. They, they do speak of greater assurance and affirmation, Father. They do, Lord, cause our hearts to resonate with the idea that you look down into us without criticism. Lord, I pray for every prodigal, Lord, every backslider here. You draw them today into your arms afresh. Assure them they're accepted in the Beloved. Take the brokenhearted to yourself. And Lord, we pray for everyone here today who's never come. That you would force them by your spirit to see Christ. To do the transaction. And wonder why they're sitting here listening, being invited to forgiveness and eternal life. And you would draw them, Father, today in repentance. Your word says you add to the church daily such as should be saved. We trust you to do that work, Lord. We leave it before you. We lift our hearts and our voices now in song and in worship. Lord, do your work in our midst. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to Get Fed Today. Today's sermon comes from Pastor Joe Foch. If you enjoy the message, you can access more of Pastor Joe's teaching ministry by visiting ccphilly.org.